Our passage tonight comes from Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 11, and chapter 7, verse 54 through 60. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now in chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Uh, Look, y'all, we've been looking this semester at why it is that believing uh, matters. And we've discovered that the real issue in believing is not so much trying to conjure up what people, time, what people oftentimes think faith really is. In other words, it's not trying to generate some internal sincerity or maybe some kind of a earnestness or intensity emotionally or otherwise uh, before you can feel like you're really embracing Christianity. Uh, actually, the process we found works in just the opposite direction. In other words, what we are to do, according to Christianity, is to fill up our imaginations with the object of our faith. That is, with the God who really is, the God who is there, the God of the Bible. And having done that, all of those things, like intensity and sincerity, naturally follow. That's the idea. In other words, you don't discover faith or grow in faith for that matter, until you look carefully into what faith is focusing on. Does that make sense? Look, the Apostles' Creed has been our guide this semester as we've done this. And tonight, we discover that the same Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead did not end his work on the earth uh, with sort of a, um, (laughs) (laughs) ta-da, In other words, Jesus was not doing like a cool party trick uh, with the resurrection here. No, he actually had a goal for his resurrection. And his resurrection was simply to say to all people that I am here to publicly establish myself as the highest authority in the cosmos. Uh, I've been laughing with some of you. Actually, I remember doing this this summer, as a matter of fact, with somebody uh, who is in a leadership role on campus. And it's a little line that I like to say to people all the time that I feel like I've learned up until this point in my life. And that's simply this. It is no fun to be in charge. (laughs) 
You want to know why it's no fun to be in charge? Because the truth is, you have to be the one who sets the direction for the group. You have to be the one who are responsible uh, for whatever results come from that group. And you typically have to be the one who doles out like punishments <laughs> for the way in which that group either does or does not get with the program. It's all on you. And I simply want to pitch at you tonight that that is a great outline for what we see Jesus doing in these passages here in Acts. It's going to be our map as we look at it. Because Jesus' death and resurrection is followed by what all of that work was culminating towards, which is Jesus taking the throne of the universe. Look, y'all, this might be confusing because many of us are thinking, well, I thought he already was on the throne. Yes, but he was there realizing that a rebellious people, a rebellious creation had cast a doubt, as it were, on that certainty of his kingship in the minds of his subjects. And so his work was to break that rebellion and to set the world to rights. I want to pitch at you three things tonight, three simple thoughts and sort of unpacking this. Jesus' ascending, number two, Jesus' defending, and number three, Jesus' judging, okay? First of all, Jesus' ascending. Look at Acts chapter 1, that you've got that passage there for you. What we have is we have Jesus with his disciples, and they look at him, and the resurrection has happened, and very naturally they look at him and they say, Okay, Jesus, is now the time? In other words, are you now going to come and set up your kingdom? Now, why do they ask that question? Well, they're asking that question because, yes, even still, they don't get it. They don't get it. They don't understand what Jesus is trying to do. They're still waiting for Jesus to come and overthrow the Roman government. They're looking for a political overthrow that Jesus is going to be the part of. But here's the problem. It's kind of hard for Jesus to answer that question simply because he is, in fact, doing just that. He's there to establish his kingdom. But here's the problem. It's not the kind of kingdom that they're thinking about. It's not that kind of kingdom. And what happens is, is at that moment, Jesus begins to rise up a little bit, all right? And then all of a sudden, a big cloud comes around and obscures them from his sight. Okay? Now... What is that all about? Um, that's a weird story, strange story that comes from Jesus. And to be honest with you, this is what theologians have referred to as Jesus's ascension. It's what the creed talks about when it says he ascended into heaven. Jesus went up and took God's throne. Now the text says that he went up into heaven, but that simply means that he went up into the sky. But this has confused people for quite some time because they look and they assume, ah, well, that's where God is. He's where? Up in the sky. Because that's where Jesus went to go meet God, somewhere in the sky. This is a, this is a bad way of thinking about the way in which the Bible does things. Uh, it leads to instances back in the 60s when the first Russian cosmonaut, Yuri uh, Gregarin, comes and circles the earth and does the first manned space flight. And he comes back to earth and uh, Russian Premier uh, uh, Khrushchev uh, goes on television and says, our astronauts have been to space and God is not there. <laughs> Look, that's not what the passage is saying, that God is like up there somewhere in heaven. No, J.I. Packer says that Jesus goes up into heaven in order to communicate to his followers 
that at that moment he is going up to take the throne of the universe. In other words, when a king typically would be crowned in an ancient Near Eastern society, he would climb up a platform to take his throne. You went up to do that, right? So when Jesus goes, ready, up into the sky, he simply says this. This is what J.I. Packer says. He says, being above us and more like infinity than anything else we know, the sky. You ever gotten that sense? You look up in the sky and you're going, that's a long way up there. That's the idea. He goes up there. Packer says, it is an emblem in space and time of God's eternal life. Heaven is not out there in the place where the Hubble telescope is looking. (laughs) Heaven is simply God's space among us. It's God's space. Is it out of our view? Yes, it's out of our view. But heaven is a place where it is God's realm. That's simply out of our sight. Heaven is very close. There's no reason to think of heaven as, didn't Stevie Wonder do a song like in the 70s that heaven is like 7 billion light years away? (laughs) He said to the crowd that was born in 1992, that's what you call relevant youth communication right there, kids. No, no. Jesus went up. (laughs) Stevie Wonder. Jesus went up. Who is Stevie Wonder? No one dare ask that question. That's when I quit. Jesus goes up for a different reason. In other words, he does so as a visible sign of his kingship. In other words, what he's saying to his followers is this, I am now in charge. Everything that happens from now on is to be done in reference to me. I am the one who sets the direction for your life. I am the one who is responsible for your successes. And I am the one who is going to return and dole out justice to the people who I created. That's what the ascension is saying. Now, for most of you, you're thinking to yourself, this seems like a fairly obvious point. But to be honest with you, I think we oftentimes miss this fact. Uh, I oftentimes hear in Christian circles, people talk like this. They'll say things like, well, you know, when I was in grade school, I asked Jesus into my heart as my Savior. But the truth is, it really wasn't until college that I made him the Lord of my life. Perhaps you've heard of people speaking that way. But see, The ascension means, if nothing else, that no one makes Jesus Lord of anything. (laughs) He's the Lord whether we acknowledge it or not. The burden of proof I would submit to you for whether or not you are following him does not have anything to do, please hear me on this, (laughs) does not have anything to do with whether or not you prayed a prayer on a youth retreat or whether or not you walked an aisle when you were in junior high and felt all emotional about it, but on whether, if you are, in fact, following him. Um, Look, for some of you, I I would like to invite you into the realm of honesty. (laughs) To be honest, because to For many of us, we hold on to a claim of being part of Jesus' followers when in fact we are doing anything but. (laughs) And I would simply submit to you tonight that perhaps you would be happier as a human being if you would simply acknowledge and admit that in fact you do not follow him and have not any real solid interest in doing as much. Look, you are living in rebellion against the one who is in charge. 
you, you are on his, on his negative side in terms of the law. Look, Jesus is looking and saying, when it's all said and done, it is going to be what you did concerning me that matters the most. Did you believe me? Not, did you believe in me? The demons do that, James says. But did you believe me? Did you take me at my word? Did you follow me? Did you call me Lord, but then did not do what I said? (laughs) Did you love the things that I love? Did you hate the things that I hate? Jesus' ascension brings him, I would submit to you, uncomfortably close to realizing that he is in charge. And if he is in charge, he has rights over me. He has the rights to speak into my life. Jesus' ascension, he is the Lord over all, or so he claims. Number two, we see, though, Jesus is defending. Now, look, I know that if you're paying attention, talk like what we just went through makes people very uncomfortable, and rightfully so. Because the truth is, when you begin to take Jesus' claims on face value, you begin to realize that it's almost impossible to have a casual relationship with this kind of God who's making these kinds of claims about himself. You simply cannot call yourself a Christian and not live by the things that Jesus said about himself. That's what he's suggesting. And so therefore, the constant confession of Jesus' followers, now don't miss this, was that after he was raised, he took his place at God's right hand And from there, he was judging the universe. But that's not all he's doing. (laughs) Because I simply want you to take notice of a simple fact. And that is that these early believers, when they first got the message that Jesus was ascended into heaven and seated on the throne of God, it didn't intimidate them in the way in which it sort of intimidated me when I was thinking about this passage. And my guess is might have intimidated some of you when you begin to think through the fact of thinking, it's a good point. If Jesus is in charge and I rebel against him, I'm in a bad way. That fact would normally, under normal circumstances, be deeply threatening. I might even say terrifying. To know that I was on the one who was in charge's bad side. Right? But here's the thing. That's not what happened to the people in Acts. They didn't sort of quibble in fear. Rather, they did exactly the opposite. Case in point, Stephen. Stephen is the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts. And you get to hear about him in Acts chapter 7. You meet him first in Acts chapter 6, and then you hear about his life in Acts chapter 7. He's an early deacon in the church. He's one of the guys who helped serve the poor in the earliest church things. And he has just preached probably the most scathing sermon against that day's religious establishment that you could possibly imagine. And now they're ready to kill him. But they're not just ready to kill him, like, mercifully. They're going to kill him by stoning. Let me let that sink in for a second. What would it be like to die a death by people throwing rocks at you? We hear stoning, and we sort of submit it over here, but, like, could there be anything more terrifying? Okay, this man has a rock in his hand. He's holding it over his head. That's going to kill him. How do you register what that must have been like? But here's the crazy thing. Stephen, when he's looking up at their wrath and seeing what's coming, not only dies heroically 
and with dignity, but he does so asking God for their forgiveness as they're doing it. Now, here's my question for you. How do you account for that? And I mean this even as a skeptic tonight, as someone who's standing on the outside of Christianity looking in thinking, I'm not sure what I think about this. How do you account for the fact that someone could find that kind of courage and forgive someone on the way out? Now, here's our answer. Our answer typically is like, well, he was just religious like that less. I mean, that's why we put him in the Bible, right? Because he was just that good. And so, hey, you know, we ought to write that down. Good old Stephen. No, it's not the case. Look, don't pass over the passage by saying that because I think the text gives us a whole lot more than that. What is it that Stephen sees when he looks up? Do you notice this? He looks and he sees Jesus standing at God's right hand. What is Jesus doing at God's right hand? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, he says, Who is to condemn Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Are you ready? Are you ready? And indeed is interceding for us. Did you catch that? Look, y'all, the reason why Jesus' ascension to the throne was thrilling and galvanizing for these earliest believers is because they realize that at that moment of his being on the throne, he was being their lawyer. He was the one who was representing them to God, the judge. Look, in in, in my opinion, this makes this story so much more interesting because all of a sudden it's incredibly moving to see Stephen standing there, probably laying on the ground, already bleeding from God knows how many stones he's already received. But he's there, and what is he getting? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the anger that it took for people to, to bring a stone over their head, to throw it on someone and crushing them, and to feel the condemnation of those men? But as Stephen looks up into the sky and he sees the real authority in life, he looks and realizes that the only opinion that matters is there approving of him. Look, y'all, you got to catch this. Feel this. <laughs> because that approval relativizes the condemnation that he's getting from his audience. Did you catch that? In other words, the knowledge that he approves made the sort of rejection on the, hor- on the sort of um, horizontal level all of a sudden not mean that much. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, this is, my, this is in my top five most embarrassing moments of all time. Bear with me. Um, feeling very vulnerable tonight in front of all of you, so I'm ready to disclose. A <laughs> number of years ago, call us crazy, uh, my wife and I tried to set up a friend of ours um, who was a couple years younger than we uh, were with the friend of another student who was in RUF, okay, who was a couple years older than her. Granted, there were like 10 years between them. I know. I know. You're like, oh, how awful. Okay, well, guess what? I got, I got told all about it. That is crazy. So I'm sitting at lunch with a friend of the girl that we're trying to set up. And she begins to make her speech. She's like, 
I mean, I heard who you're trying to set so-and-so up with. Like, he's 10 years older than she is. And I was like, look, y'all need to chill out. 10 years is not that big a gap. And this guy was super nice. And we thought the girl was so nice. We thought, oh, this will be fun. <laughs> okay, the girl looks at me. I'm a romantic at heart. I really am. I'm a Cupid. Um, this girl looks at me, and I, I'm not making this up. She, she cloaks her face with such disgust, okay? And she's like, less. I mean, that would be like someone like me being with someone like you. <laughs> now, here's the deal. Had somebody said that to me when I was in like high school or college, I would have been done. I mean, I'm telling you, I would have been like, thank you. Rejection has come full circle. I'm going to commit suicide. Thank you very much. <laughs> How would you, but here's the funny thing. Here's the funny thing. I thought it was hilarious then. I burst into laughter then, and I've been laughing about it for the last 10 years. Ginger loves to tell that story. Now, here's the question. Why didn't that crush me the way in which it should or normally would have? Because you want to know why? Because there's a lady at home tonight whose name is Ginger who married me. Ginger's approval relativized the rejection of this person. In other words, there was something about her love for me. And by God's grace, by God's grace, has continued to be there that basically makes other people's, other women's rejection of me be like, okay. Look, y'all, is it not possible that when the Bible says that Jesus is there approving of Stephen before his father, that he is at that moment curing the fear of the condemnation that he's getting from the men who have rocks over their heads to crush him with. And if he can survive that, maybe I can begin to deal with my desperate need for approval from other people. Look, y'all, the gospel of Jesus Christ is trying to set you free from the verdicts that other people have issued against you for your entire life. And that my guess is you have probably been issuing against yourself for time before time. Look, y'all, these early believers were capable of feats of extraordinary bravery. But it wasn't because it was natural to them. They were just religious like that. It was because they had a confidence that was on loan from knowing that God himself had approved of them. I didn't plan this, but could there be such a great pre-rush passage for us to look at? How do we feel, freshmen, with the scrutiny of the eyes upon us who in mere days will hold us in the balance? And for many of us, we'll feel as if it is my very life that's being judged. Oh, don't condescend. It feels that way here. We are extraordinarily wrapped up in knowing that I am 
in, <laughs> that I'm there, that people will cast approval on me. Please remember that upperclassman when you, when you talk to people. <laughs> and underclassmen, you freshmen, remember that Jesus offers something to people, which is an approval that relativizes the opinions of others. He offers that to us. And the, hopes is, the hope is, is that it fills us up to a degree that we look at those around us and say, I can deal with your rejection because he has approved of me. Hmm. Thirdly and finally, Jesus is defending, secondly. But thirdly, Jesus is judging. Because if you're listening, that begs a question. How can that be less? Because on the one hand, we see Jesus sitting on the throne completely in charge and coming back to mete out justice. And that's a terrifying thing to me. But his early followers are completely galvanized by that thought that the king would be on their side. How is it possible to come to that kind of confidence and know for a fact that Jesus is talking about you? Here's the answer. Because, my friends, you have to accept Jesus as more than your Savior and more than your Lord. I would submit to you that you need to accept Jesus as your judge. Look, most people when they hear things like that are kind of like, no, 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 no less. Look, I don't like to think about God as judge. I think that's beneath God to think about him as being vindictive and, and punishing. But I would submit to you that there's no relief in going in that route. Sort of deny God of his sovereignty brings no relief to us. Because in my experience, the people that are the most anxious to get rid of a God who judges are themselves the ones that are the most strident about getting their way of looking at things. Judgmentalism comes in all forms, apparently. But look, I simply want to suggest to you that there are two ideas that you need to apply to yourself as you begin to think about the ascension. The first is this. The ascension means that you can finally be honest. Y'all, I love this idea. Look, at Ole Miss, it feels like you are being evaluated at every single moment. It feels that way. There is no security at this place, in case you haven't noticed. And the truth is, we are being judged on the basis of our resume. We're being judged on the basis of our waistline. On the basis of our clothes, our performance, our cool factor, our family, our money, whatever. But here's the deal. The good news is Jesus cannot be spun. In other words, Jesus can't be faked out. Because he is the king, he knows. <laughs> he knows. Many of us have been playing a game since we got here. Actually, since we were born to where our life and our personality is nothing more than a very sophisticated self-image campaign where we're trying to control other people's impression of us. Look, in my opinion, I think it's actually good news to go ahead and admit that the deepest things that I fear about myself are true. It's all true. I can stop hiding because he's in charge. He's not fooled. He's at the right hand of God the Father. He sees it all. So finally, I can be honest. Whew. Could we use a little bit of that here? Secondly, though, not only can I be honest, but I can be confident. How? 
Look, I don't know about you, but the thought of a judgment day, the thought that God is coming back to judge the quick, that is the living, and the dead, is incredibly intimidating, is it not? There's no more hiding. It'll be a terrifying idea of judgment. If Jesus is coming to judge those people, what gives me, what keeps me from dreading every single day between now and that time? You know, I, I can remember being a child and having people talk about the end times. Um, I may have a little bit of a different view on that. We've got the Revelation podcast online. You can look into that book as you might. But I remember as a child having people talk about the book of Revelation in the most threatening of ways. What if he's coming back tomorrow? Oh, <gasps> awful. It was a terrifying thought. So when honestly, oftentimes that stuff is used. But this is what Jesus' ascension, I think, is offering to us tonight. What if our judgment day has already passed? Think about this for a second. Look, y'all, the kicker, <laughs> the kicker of the cross is that when we stand in the courtroom of eternity, the courtroom of life, with verdicts getting handed down every single day from without and from within, that when we look up at our judge feeling condemned, a completely appropriate sensation, by the way, we suddenly discover that in Christianity, the judge has come off the bench and been included not only in the verdict, but also in the sentencing. Look, y'all, Jesus' dying did not only secure your pardon, but also your acquittal. <laughs> the sentence has not only been passed, but the sentence has been served. It's been paid. Look, y'all, Christians can have confidence. you got to get this. <laughs> For some of you, nothing will be the same after tonight because you'll have gotten this point. I bet you. For a Christian, the ascension means that my judgment day is in my past. Done. <laughs> there is therefore now no condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because my judgment day is done. There's nothing to fear in a future judgment day of Jesus coming back because my judgment day happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. It's wide open. <laughs> um, how differently would it be to look at the future in that way? Do you know Jesus as Savior? As Lord? But do you know him as your judge? Do you know him as the judge who was judged so that I can survive my judgment? Look, y'all, the Heidelberg Catechism that we started reading until I realized that we were going to learn the Apostles' Creed this semester says this. And I want to close with this little line. Question 52 asks about where we find comfort in this life. Listen to this. That in all of my sorrows and persecutions... With uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. That is an invitation. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, forgive us, because for many of us, we have assumed up until this time that what it meant to become a Christian was to get our life straight, was to wake up one morning and determine that we were going to try harder, that what it meant to become a Christian was to leave some of the more manageable bad habits that we've been grappling with and try to do better tomorrow. When all the while not realizing that the verdict still hung over our heads, that we were still on probation, maybe forgiven for things past, but still looming over us the fear of what comes tomorrow. Oh, Lord Jesus, as you are standing even now at the right hand of your Father, would you grant unto us just a slight glimpse of the vision that Stephen saw of you defending your people before the heavenly tribunal. Because if the Father listens to anyone, he listens to you on our behalf. So, Lord Jesus, would you send us from this place in freedom? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.